Subject matter described in this podcast may be mature in nature and some details disturbing or triggering to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to another episode of Poisonous Minds. I think we can all say that 2020 has been, well, not what we hoped it was going to be, but the show must go on. Happy Halloween to all my spooktacular witches and monsters. I hope you all have a safe and spooky holiday, however you choose to celebrate. Today's episode is more like a real-life horror story taking you on a roller coaster of emotions as we dive into this case. How a beautiful national forest and park can attract family fun and devastation. Murder, miscarriages of justice, and madness will fill this nightmare. So, let's begin. Imagine the picturesque all-American family town. That was exactly what residents of Asheville, North Carolina would say about it in the early 1880s to 1990s. It was the poster child for the mottos, safe place to live and great place to raise your family. With the endless amenities offered by nature, Asheville was the third largest city in North Carolina in the 1990s, located in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains until the monster finally creeps from the shadows and turns your super host rating to a ghost town. Thad, Catherine, and their daughter, Karen Stiles, made a quiet and lovely life in their cute ranch-style home in the community of Candler, North Carolina. Thad drove an 18-wheeler, and Catherine was an assistant manager at a check-cashing company. Their daughter, 22-year-old Karen Stiles, was a recent college graduate from Western Carolina University. Her bulletin board in her room displays all of her track competition ribbons that she proudly earned. She enjoyed fishing trips with her dad and was an animal lover and loved to run. On Halloween morning in 1994, on the outskirts of Asheville, North Carolina, the air is crisp and the sun was shining, and along with this beautiful morning, 22-year-old Karen Stiles was getting ready to start her morning by preparing for a jog through the scenic Bent Creek Recreational Area near Lake Powhatan, a southwestern part of Buncombe County. She got into her car and set off to the recreational area a little before 8 a.m. It took her about 10 to 15 minutes to get there from her family home. She pulled into a parking spot and began to stretch before setting out on her run when she was never heard from again. The next day, November 1st, after Karen had not returned home or heard from by friends or family, her parents report their daughter missing. Searchers located her car at the parking lot near Hard Time Trails, and about 200 yards from her vehicle, they found her car key. But there were still no signs of Karen anywhere. This led to a massive land and air search effort on the area. Endless possibilities running through the minds of everyone looking for her. Did she have an accident while on her jog? 
had she gotten lost in the vastness of the deep, tall forest around her. Did she encounter an animal? Fall and hit her head? Had she tried to get a ride home from somebody since she lost her key? The possibilities were endless. This is your Poisonous Minds public service announcement. According to a post from Loft Investigation International, Inc., the government does not track missing people on federal land, stating, and I quote, The federal government does not track the number of missing people in national parks, but experts believe 1,600 individuals mysteriously vanish each year while visiting parks throughout the United States. While many reported missing are found, it is estimated hundreds remain missing. End quote. Even a New York Post article in July of 2020 called, quote, Why Hundreds of Americans Vanish into the American Wilderness, end quote. I'll link the article on my site. They said, and I quote, According to NamUs, which is the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System, more than 60,000 persons go missing in the United States every year. Anywhere between 89% to 92% of those missing people are recovered every year, either alive or deceased. But how many of those disappear in the wild is unclear. Neither the Department of Interior, which oversees the National Park Service, or the Department of Agriculture, U.S. Forest Service, keeps track. Strangely, the most reliable information on missing people in the wild comes from Bigfoot hunters. In 2011, David Paldis, founder of the North American Bigfoot Search, launched a database of wildland disappearances that occur under mysterious circumstances. From his research, there are at least 1,600 people, give or take, currently missing in the wild somewhere in the United States. End quote. In local Bigfoot hunters, we trust. Anyways, to think that this has not changed in the last 26 years since Karen's case truly does shock me. This feels like a very alarming fact. That if you go missing in a very wooded part of our country, which is a good amount, it's about 8% of our land in the United States. But if you go missing, no one's really going to look. It's probably too expensive, and they're just, fingers crossed, hoping you'll end up walking out of those woods one day. Come on, feds. What are you afraid of? Bigfoot? He seems cool. Just don't threaten him. He's probably caring for all those missing people of the land. Okay. Sarcastic rant over. For now, anyways. <laughs> After three days of searching, the efforts are called off. To me, that just doesn't sit right that they would call off all efforts just a short time after being reported missing. There also isn't a lot of information on if the police had any other leads or suspects at the time. On November 13th, North Carolina wildlife officers found a bloodstained t-shirt. They called back the searchers to scope the area, but they still failed to locate Karen. On November 25th, Thanksgiving Day, 1994, 25 days after Karen was first reported missing, a deer hunter was near Hardtime Trail when, in the woods, he stumbled upon a horrific scene. 
he found Karen's nude, lifeless body gagged and bound to a tree trunk with duct tape with a gunshot wound to the head. Laying around the area was a duct tape wrapper, a porno magazine, and one spent 22 caliber rifle casing near her body. Immediately, he notified the police and they identified the body as Karen Stiles. Her family was heartbroken to receive such news as they spend their first holidays without their young daughter. The coroner's autopsy ruled Karen's cause of death as a single gunshot wound to the head. She also suffered from 10 stun gun wounds to her body, nine of them inflicted within six inches of her pubic area. Investigators on the scene recognized the brand of the duct tape wrapper as one that is specifically sold at Kmart, and ideally enough, there was a Kmart about a mile from the location of Karen's body. So sheriffs took their chance and went to that Kmart, and they were able to track the receipts for the transactions that occurred October 28th and October 31st. The name associated with the receipts was Richard Jackson. That name was familiar with many, as Richard's father, J.D. Jackson, was a prominent Asheville real estate agent. Richard Ricky Allen Jackson was his 26-year-old adopted son. He worked as a dishwasher at the Brevard Road restaurant that his father owned. On October 28th, Richard Jackson had purchased, well, he purchased what I would call the start of a murder kit for dummies. He purchased a 22 caliber rifle, ammunition, flashlight, and batteries. Then, on October 31st, the day of Karen's attack, he made a second purchase, including the duct tape and a porno magazine. But wait, there's more. Again on October 31st, in the afternoon, Richard Jackson went and returned the rifle to Kmart. Yes, I said returned. How appalling. To do something so sinister and then so stupid. Not that I'm giving tips on being a murderer, but come on, seriously? To be so malicious to another human and meticulous in the approach of stalking his victim, to turn around and hand over the murder weapon back to the store you purchased it from for a full refund, seems naive and half thought out. But I digress. On December 20th, Richard was picked up by Buncombe County Sheriff's Department for questioning as he was a suspect in the murder of Karen Stiles, where he was read his Miranda rights, but he initially denied any involvement. A search was also conducted on Jackson's home and car, where they recovered the stun gun, a flashlight, and a black ninja outfit. Yep, you heard me right. Ninja outfit. You can't be a ninja with the name Dick Jackson. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we could call him the jerk-off ninja. Anyways. They also find an adult magazine and a partially empty twenty-two caliber rifle ammunition box. After an extensive three hours of questioning, Sheriff Bobby Medford walked into the room and asked Richard, quote, What did you do with that rifle that Karen Stiles was shot with? End quote. In which Jackson replied, quote, I think I need a lawyer. End quote. 
The investigators then were said to have consulted with the district attorney's office, and then they came back into the interrogation room where Richard was still sitting and continued the questioning until Jackson broke down, saying he didn't mean to kill anybody. He then signed another waiver of his Miranda rights according to case law and gave a detailed confession according to trial testimony. In conjunction with the court documentations of Jackson v. the United States, he outlined the accounts of that morning. At about 8 a.m., he watched Karen as she stretched and walked down the trail. Once Karen had passed him on the trail, he confronted her at gunpoint. This would be around the area. Karen removed her key from her shoe and pleaded with Jackson that there was money in her car and he could take her car, begging him not to hurt her. Jackson placed tape over her eyes and mouth and forced her farther into the woods, where he then duct taped her to a tree, removed her clothing, and began his vicious attack on Karen by raping her. She pleaded through the tape over her mouth to Jackson not to hurt her, but he responded to that by tasing her with the stun gun. Once above the left breast and several times in the pubic area. Once his assault on her was complete, he stepped back from the tree and unwrapped his porno magazine and began to masturbate. Karen was able to break away some of the tape from her mouth and began screaming, hoping that her efforts would draw the attention of anyone. He raised his rifle at her head and let off one shot and left her there to be degraded further by the elements for nearly a month until she was found that day on Thanksgiving. This sent a shock through the once sleepy college town, putting everyone on edge. Thad and Catherine lost their only child, and the community of outdoor lovers lost their sense of security. This attack was random. Not a jealous ex or husband killing the wife and kids situation. It would be the odds of the person you pass in the grocery store aisle waiting for you to get into your car and then killing you for no damn reason. That kind of random. Richard Jackson and Karen Stiles had no ties to each other. Just mere strangers. Countless amount of people a day do the same thing. Venture out into the woods on a beautiful day looking for inner peace, healing, and fulfillment that nature can provide. Now it's forever tainted by the valid paranoia, causing specifically women to begin doing outdoor activities in larger groups or pairs to help them feel safer. Also, one of my golden rules is buddy system. Let all the dudes laugh that the girls always go to the bathroom in groups. Whatever. Whatever it takes to keep us or someone else safe. Look out for one another and always know where your nearest exit is. This is your Poisonous Minds tip of the day. Richard Jackson no longer disputed that he committed these acts. He was formally charged with first-degree murder, kidnapping, and aggravated sexual abuse, and in the course of such violence and through the use of such firearm, causing the death of Karen Stiles. Seems pretty open and shut, right? The answer is no. Not at all. Hopping back to the interrogation, when Sheriff Bobby Medford, along with the sheriff's detectives, questioned Richard Allen Jackson in 1994, 
Richard said, I quote, I think I need a lawyer, end quote, at one point. According to the Asheville Citizen Times, Medford replied, and I quote, If you get a lawyer, tell him I know where you bought the gun you killed her with, end quote, in which Jackson confessed. Medford sought counsel of the state's attorney general and Buncombe County District Attorney Ron Moore's office. Medford was told that the, quote, I think, unquote, statement wasn't a clear request for an attorney, being why he continued the conversation that Jackson ended up confessing to. A pretrial hearing was held by Judge James Downs, ruling the confession of Mr. Jackson as being admissible for court. Also in his ruling, he said, quote, Jackson knew what he was doing, could have left the interrogation room at any time, and had already been read his rights, but spoke anyway without an attorney. Even if Jackson was in custody, his statement was not an invocation of his Fifth Amendment right to counsel, end quote. Justice John Webb said, quote, We disagree. If at any time an interrogation of a person in custody the person invokes the right to counsel, the interrogation must cease, and it cannot be resumed without any attorney being present unless the defendant initiates a further discussion with the officers. A suspect is in custody when, considering the totality of circumstances, a reasonable person in the suspect's position would not feel free to leave, end quote, as they said in a writing for higher court review on this case. Some additional issues in this case were that the medical examiner could only recover fragments of the bullet, which could not conclusively be matched to the gun, and tests done to the spent shell casing received from the scene could not be linked to the rifle, as testified by an FBI agent during trial. Another officer had testified that the lab results of the duct tape wrapper and other items found at the scene revealed no fingerprints. Prints and similar evidence were apparently lost to the elements during the time that Karen's body was tied to the tree. But they did have the evidence presented during trial of the Kmart receipts for the duct tape, a purchase rifle, and shell casings, along with the semen sample they had obtained during autopsy examination of Karen. But Richard's confession weighed heavy during this trial, and on November 20th, 1995, the jury finds Richard Jackson guilty of first-degree murder, kidnapping, and rape. November 22nd, the jury unanimously recommends that Jackson is sentenced to death. However, the battle for the Stiles family does not end there. Then on April 1998, North Carolina Supreme Court overturns Richard Allen Jackson's death sentence and orders a new trial saying the confession was illegally obtained after he requested and did not receive an attorney. In March of 2000, Richard Jackson was sentenced to 25 to 30 years in prison after pleading guilty to second-degree murder, first-degree rape, and second-degree kidnapping, also given credit for the five years served on death row. He took this plea to escape being put back on death row. The total stipulated prison sentence was an agreement for 31 years. The Blue Ridge Now article quotes Karen's parents, Thad and Catherine, as saying that death row is, quote, where he belongs, unquote, referring to Richard's lesser sentence for his own life. 
D.A. Moore refers to the styles, quote, Obviously, they are not happy. They are disappointed. It's probably the hardest thing I've had to do in nine years of being a D.A. Tell them that I thought this was in the best interest of where we were at, end quote. Moore goes on to say, quote, If we had the ballistics, we would have no problem tying the gun to the murderer, end quote. J.D. Jackson, father of Richard, believed his son was innocent. After the mistrial was announced, J.D. was quoted as saying to the Asheville Citizens Time, quote, As we said from the beginning, we want the truth. We're not afraid of the truth. Maybe this time the truth will come out, end quote. In the same article, Jackson stated that he and his wife, who adopted Richard Allen Jackson when he was five and a half years old, want their son to get help for obvious psychiatric problems that surfaced during the trial. During the trial, the Jacksons learned that before they adopted their son, he may have suffered from sexual molestation as a child, adding, quote, We know our son needs help, and we want him to get the help he needs. We're hoping and praying he gets the help he needs, psychiatric help or hospitalization, end quote. However, at the time of his plea, Jackson's lawyers never considered the possibility of federal prosecution, and no one advised him that he could be facing federal prosecution. So on November 2000, a federal grand jury returned an indictment charge for Richard Jackson, one count of using a firearm during and in relation to a crime of violence, specifically murder, kidnapping, and aggravated sexual abuse. The government had 22 witnesses, extensive physical and testimonial evidence, including the confession. At this trial, the defense presented testimony of Jackson's adopted mother, Sally Jackson. The defense tried to present testimony that Richard's natural sister suffered from behavioral disorders, but the district court did not allow the testimony without expert testimony, linking the sister's mental condition to Richard's. I think that's only fair. (laughs) In May of 2001, the grand jury finds Jackson guilty of the charges in the indictment and imposing the sentence of death. In many appeal processes later, as accounted by case law, Richard's mother, Sally, testifies about his childhood, his adolescence, his education, his work experience, his problems and failures, his marriage, and his activities in the month preceding the murder of Karen Stiles and several months thereafter. She explained that she and her husband adopted Richard when he was five and a half years old, and they were struck immediately by his abnormal behaviors and his use for inappropriate language. She testifies that by the time Richard was six or seven years old, he was caught several times masturbating. They said that he did poorly in school, skating by with about C's and D's, After graduating, he went to the Navy for a short period of time before he left because of mental problems and returned home. After he was working at a pizza parlor where he met his wife, Donna, and they married just after a few days and had two children shortly after. This is like literally the profile of how to build a serial killer. Sally Jackson said that Richard was having difficulties holding down a job but he was putting a little more effort into things when he was working at the pizza shop since he had met his wife, Donna. 
However, later on, he ended up working at a Brevard Road restaurant where he lived in a trailer with his family behind the restaurant. His mother recounts that the months prior to the murder, Richard's hygiene was increasingly worse, such that she would have to talk him into taking a bath to relieve his bad odor. She also testified that Richard suffered a serious burn on his arm a few days prior to the murder, and he was treated in the emergency center with strong pain medication. Sally Jackson acknowledged that Richard and his wife had financial problems and that she would help them pay the rent and sometimes the electricity. Some of their problems came from the fact that Richard ran up a very large telephone bill by calling 900 sex numbers. Sally Jackson testified that on November 1st, 1994, the day after Stiles' murder, Jackson was again admitted to the hospital for having tried to commit suicide. She testified that she had always believed that Richard did not kill Karen Stiles, but in fact, she came to believe that he did. Sally Jackson explained how she and her husband thereafter sought to contact the Stiles family to express their sorrow and compassion, but they were not able to do so. Additionally, there were two witnesses who saw Jackson in 1994 acting suspiciously in Elk Mountain, another wooded and rural area about 15 miles from where Karen had been murdered. He was spotted in all black carrying a rifle. One of them testified that on multiple occasions he saw Jackson in all black driving around and acting suspicious, which I don't know which part, <laughs> part of that is acting suspicious because it all sounds suspicious. Driving around in all black. I mean, I'm I'm picturing the ninja outfit. I mean, I wear all black every day, so I wouldn't say that me driving around is suspicious necessarily, but driving around in a ninja outfit <laughs> during the day acting suspicious. Yep. I would I would definitely say that that is acting suspicious. Um yeah, but uh, they didn't report anything, so probably why he was able to get away with so many things. Anyways, also during their testimony, they saw Jackson with either a rifle or a shovel. Government was establishing that Jackson was preparing and planning as soon as August of 94 in an entirely different area. This information actually opens up a whole other can of worms. According to the report from UPI, Assistant District Attorney Kate Dreer had an exchange with Jackson about being suspected in two other murders in the area that matched Jackson's predatory M.O., saying, quote, We have two unsolved murders involving women whose bodies were discovered in wooded areas who had been shot. He has not been ruled out as a suspect, and he was at the age at the time of the murders occurred to be considered a suspect, she said. Seven killings were unsolved in Buncombe County, and Dreher would not say which murders may involve Jackson, but she was heard telling him, quote, and Pamela Murray too, end quote. Pamela Murray was an industrial engineer, and she was 23 years old when she was abducted from a parking lot at the Asheville Mall on Valentine's Day, 1987. 
Mary's body had a gunshot wound to her head and back and was found on a deserted road in a wooded area in Oteen, North Carolina, later that day. The only other unsolved murder similar to Stiles was that of Beverly Sherman, a 17-year-old sex worker who was last seen January 20th, 1987, getting into a car behind the Asheville Civic Center. Authorities said she was killed that day by someone who shot her in the head. Her body was not found until April 26th. Stiles' murder does not look like someone's first offense. It was too organized and well-planned. We expect the investigation to continue. End quote. Richard Jackson has not been charged in any other murders as it stands. He is, however, serving his death sentence in Terre Haute Penitentiary. This monster robbed the Stiles family of their only daughter and the security of every person who enjoyed the same outdoor trails and activities that Karen did. It left people looking over their shoulder at the sound of every leaf freely tumbling in the wind, the snap of a branch from a group of chipmunks running merrily, or the spine-tingly feeling that someone is watching you, hunting you in a sense. So, buddy up, carry some sort of self-defense weapon, and always watch your back. Thank you all for another wild episode of Poisonous Minds. Please rate and review on any and all of your podcast streaming platforms, and like and follow me on social media at Poisonous Minds Pod. Have a safe and spooky Halloween. Bye! The Poisonous Minds Podcast is written, produced, and composed by myself, Brittany Mejias.